Hello and welcome to this episode of the Geoeconomic Agenda, a podcast from the Institute for Geoeconomics at the Asia-Pacific Initiative in Tokyo that investigates the connections between economics, geopolitics, business, and society. I'm your host, Paul Neto, and I'm a visiting researcher at the IOG. In a few moments, Professor Eto Naoko, Senior Fellow and Group Head for China here at the IOG, will share her thoughts on China's new Politburo and what it means for the trajectory of China's international economic policy. But first, here's the latest news from the world of geoeconomics. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan delivered an address on U.S. international economic strategy at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. on April 27th. In his speech, he expressed skepticism about further trade liberalization, particularly in terms of reducing tariffs, and skepticism towards international economic integration. In response, he offered a defense of the Inflation Reduction Act and of industrial policy in general, while also emphasizing cooperation with U.S. partners. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai met with Nishimura Yasutoshi, Minister of Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry, in Tokyo on April 19th. At their meeting, they signed the U.S.-Japan Critical Minerals Agreement, a moratorium stating that electric vehicles manufactured in the United States but using materials sourced from Japan will be eligible for tax breaks under the Inflation Reduction Act. Automakers from Japan, as well as from the EU, have been concerned that the IRA rules to qualify for tax breaks unfairly advantage U.S. auto manufacturers. They also discussed the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPEF, in preparation for the upcoming negotiating round in Singapore this May, the upcoming Trade Ministerial for APEC in Detroit later this May, the G7 Trade Ministerial in Osaka this October, and the U.S.-Japan Cooperation on Business and Human Rights following the Moratorium of Cooperation on the U.S.-Japan Task Force on the Promotion of Human Rights and International Labor Standards and Supply Chains that was signed in January 2023. Ambassador Tai also appeared at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan during her visit in Tokyo. During her appearance, she insisted that the United States is not seeking to decouple from China and that any trade sanctions toward the country are narrowly targeted. The U.S. Commerce Department added 28 firms to its entity list of sanctioned companies on April 12th for attempting to evade export controls or to assist Russia's military or industrial base. The firms, which include companies from China, Turkey, Russia, Singapore, Armenia, Uzbekistan, Spain, Syria, and the United Arab Emirates, have been sanctioned for violations including assistance in the transfer of material or personnel from Iran to Russia, coordinating flights, or attempting to acquire U.S. origin items on behalf of companies already on the red flag list. The announcement is part of a third-party crackdown on transshipment of items to Russia. Firms on the entity list must receive U.S. government authorization in order to obtain certain U.S. technologies, which effectively bars suppliers from shipping U.S. technology to these companies. The U.S. Commerce Department has added roughly 400 companies to the entity list since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began in February 2022. And that's the news. This is the Geoeconomics Agenda with Paul Neto. I'm sitting down right now with Professor Eto Naoko. 
She's a senior researcher and China group head here at the Institute of Geoeconomics, and she's also a professor at Gakshin University. I'm sitting down with her today to discuss the most recent Congress in China and talk about what it means for China's future in international economics. Professor Eto, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Paul Sun. So let's start with the big picture. We've just had this Congress wrap up in the last month. What would you say are the big takeaways? What's new? What's different? What's the big picture thing that we need to know? Well, as is widely recognized, I think the major changes have been in personal matters and the reform of the party and state council structures. Let's talk about uh, personal matters first. In terms of personal appointments, the seven top leaders have been appointed, in my opinion, in a balanced manner, with no emphasis on any one faction in Xi Jinping's personal network, including those from Zhejiang and Fujian provinces. It can be said that I think a pyramid power structure with Xi Jinping at the top has been already established. Only one of them, Wang Huning, was somewhat uh, prominent because he's a uh, long-standing in the committee. But with the arrival of Han Zheng as the state vice president, he's expected to join the Politburo Standing Committee sometimes, as Wang Qishang did before. So this too has been balanced. And also, the, as for the reform of organization was characterized by its aim to strengthen functions with finance and science and technology. However, I'd like to focus it on here on the Central Social Work Department, which is newly established in the party. It was originally expected that the party would establish a new organization for social control that would consolidate the police and law enforcement agencies. But the milder organization called Xinjiang was established to strengthen the basic social control while integrating the complement mechanism. What this structural change suggests is that uh, both internal party tightenings and social tightenings are proceeding. And as a result, that repression within China is likely to become stronger, although it is difficult to see from the outside. Turning towards uh, international economic policy, what do you see as the main implications of the Congress for the future of China's international economic policy? Particularly, we've got a new uh, point person on trade matters. Uh, can you talk to us about him? Um, in terms of economic appointment, Premier Li Chang is now already acting as a control tower and directs economic policy. While I think the Vice Premier He Lifang, uh, who is in charge of economic affairs, will probably formulate substantive policies. But of course, uh, President Xi Jinping is above them. So we expect this is basically a top-down system that does not conflict with Xi Jinping's intentions. Nevertheless, uh, since Li Chang will be in a period of transition uh, for a while, and uh, the characteristics of the economic policies of the third period will probably be seen in earnest 
at the third plenum, uh, which is expected to be held in this fall. However, there is no doubt, I think, that the basic course of action will be to focus first on rebuilding the domestic economy, not the international one. According to the Nikkei newspaper in 2022, China's 21 provinces, autonomous regions, and municipalities collectively spent on zero corona measures 390 billion yuan, which is roughly 56.7 billion US dollars. With a 65% increase in local government debt, uh, there's an urgent need to rebuild the economy. And furthermore, the political emphasis on technological innovation with the US-China confrontation in mind. So they are currently focusing on attracting foreign investment. Unless there are major political matters, this policy is expected to be maintained until there comes a robust economic recovery. So I think for a while, we don't need to worry much about the Chinese political changes. Touching on that, but also stepping back a little bit from the most recent Congress, one of the other key developments from the most recent Congress was the departure of Liu He, who, among other things, had been China's top trade negotiator. What's his legacy? How will people remember him five, ten years from now? Mm -hmm. It is a difficult question, but uh, in my understanding, in my opinion, as for Liu He, the credit goes him for feeling the most needed element in China's economy, which is credibility. Uh, for example, at the Davos Forum in January, Li He attracted attention when he said, some people say China will go for a planned economy that's by no means possible. I think it suggests his realistic view of the Chinese economy without ideological leanings. This statement was outlived, which was not in the original draft according to the transcripts published by the World Economic Forum. So it can be said that it was Liu He's final statement of intent to domestic and international audiences. So the fact that he was able to dialogue in his own words with a discourse that was acceptable to outsiders led to a sense of confidence in Liu He which was not 100% compensated for probably, but it did lead to a sense of security in his economic policies for the outsiders. Also in China, a team was formed around Liu He to gather information and make policy decisions. And he, this was also made possible because Liu He was trusted as a person over the long time he spent working with the economic bureaucrats. From this perspective, it is noteworthy that although Liu He himself retired in his disappointment, his teammates, Yi Gang, uh, who is People's Bank of China governor, and Liu Kong, finance minister, remained in office. And I think it is likely that the Xi administration wanted to ensure credibility by retaining personnel with the same orientation as Liu He. When you look back over the past 20, 30 years, there's been some wild swings in how the world has understood China's role in the international economy. There was the 
optimism of the 90s with China's negotiations to enter the World Trade Organization, with the pendulum swinging towards the responsible stakeholder framework in the mid-2000s, and now I think to you know, genuine concern and even discussions of decoupling in the United States. How do you interpret all of these different evolutions? How, how, do you, how have you seen and understood all these processes as you've studied China over the years? Well, as a China analyst, I think China has consistently pursued an economic reform policy since around the mid-1970s. Because development has been the keyword in politics until today, since then. And it is persuasive because China itself has successfully developed its economy and raised the standard of living of its people. The swing in your question, I suppose, probably refers to the coexistence of the pessimistic view that the Chinese economy will collapse in the future and the hopeful view that Chinese economic development will continue, though the pessimism sometimes appearing stronger in my understanding. And uh, when I talk about the reason why the two perspectives coexistence, is that the case of a cross between socialism and the market economy is a kind of a new experiment for us. Since the end of the Cold War, we have viewed socialism as a failure system. Indeed, in a society where freedom of information and individual rights are not guaranteed, logically thinking, a market economy would be considered a dead end. On the contrary, in Chinese society, the key to China's success has been explained as the fact that publicity-owned, public-owned economy was the main source of economic activity. Furthermore, as the society is becoming increasingly information-driven, the argument for the superiority of authoritarian societies that can aggregate information has become more persuasive. And in reality, China's economy now suffers from the adverse effect of the institutional fatigue in the economy and will not be able to develop at the high level of economic development that it has in the past. But the Chinese experiment continues, and we have not yet concluded whether it is a success or a failure. There is still a traditional period going on, and we will continue this swing, that kind of swing, I think. So finally, does the new Politburo and the economic leadership specifically does that offer opportunities to diffuse some of these geopolitical tensions that we're seeing, especially around economics? Does it make the future more complicated? How do you, how do you see China's course going forward in the context of this geopolitical competition that we keep hearing so much about? It is also a very difficult question, but I believe the geoeconomic competition will be more complicated. From Japan's standpoint, uh, we must rebuild stable and, uh, stable and constructive relations with China, while strengthening cooperation with the United States and the G7 country in terms of security. So it is very difficult originally, and at the same time, we will deepen cooperation with European and South, uh, Southeast Asian countries that share these difficult maneuvers. 
So we must constantly search for equilibrium point in a fluid situation. We cannot have a very clear view for now, but uh, the situation is keep on changing. That's the point, I think. Professor Eto, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Paul Sam. This is the Geoeconomics Agenda with Paul Neto. Finally, Jake Sullivan isn't the first decision maker to worry about the balance between commerce and security. It's an age-old concern that probably goes back as far as the beginning of commercial exchange, but there's a particularly vivid example from the 15th century that still resonates to this day. Vlad III was the voivode, or prince, of Wallachia in what's now the southern third of Romania, and one of his main concerns was the potential threat from the Ottoman Empire immediately to the south of his borders. And that wasn't all. The lands which now make up Romania were a complicated region, divided between Hungarians, communities of German Saxon emigres and their descendants who settled in Transylvania, the people who would later become Romanians, and more. Over time, Vlad III came into various degrees of conflict with most all of them for different reasons, but particularly because the Hungarians, frequently with the support of the Saxons, often supported challengers to Vlad's throne. To help secure his position, he placed strict restrictions on Saxon commerce, requiring them to sell only to Wallachian traders or at specially designated trade fairs in Wallachia. This accomplished several steps at once. It gave Vlad access to the wealth of the Saxon merchants, while simultaneously making them dependent on commerce in Wallachia, while also enabling Vlad to secure the southern border against potential Ottoman incursions. But Vlad was not forgiving toward violators of these new restrictions, and would have violators tortured and their shops ransacked. His rivals even began telling of how violators and their children would be impaled while Vlad drank their blood. Now, to be fair to Vlad, there's no documentation that he ever restricted commerce like this, and he even emphasized his consistent support of free trade later in life, although there is plenty of documentation about his cruelty. But with the Saxons, the damage had been done, and in their resentment, they began to spread stories of Vlad's cruelty, taking advantage of the invention of movable type printing to spread these stories across Europe, even reaching as far as the Pope in Rome. Often, these stories would use his sorbiquet, or nickname, which was Son of the Dragon, and which eventually provided the inspiration for Irish author Bram Stoker when he adopted these stories in his novel, which he titled with the Slavonic form of Vlad's nickname, Dracula. That's all for this episode, but stay tuned for more on the way. Until then, we want to know what you want to hear about, as well as take your questions for our show. So send us an email at geoeconomicagenda at ihj.global. Be sure to like, rate, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, tell your friends, and most of all, keep listening. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to the team at API for making this happen, and we'll talk to you next time.